0: I'm Will Primos, and you're listening to the Fochi Creek Podcast.
1: This is Cody Robbins from Live to Hunt with Cody and Kelsey, and you're listening to Joby and Shed with the Foshi Creek Podcast. You're listening to Joby and Shed on Fochi Creek Podcast. You're listening to Joby and, and Shed on the Foshi Creek Podcast. It's not as good to speak the language, but it's close. <laughs> <laughs> this has been Rising with Whitetail Edge, and you're listening to Fochi Creek Podcast. With
0: Shed and Joby, this is Austin Delano with Mossy Oak Biologic and Gamekeepers, and you're
1: listening to Joby and Shed Whitaker on Folshee Creek Podcast.
2: You're listening to the Foshi Creek Podcast. I'm Joby Holland. With me is Mr. Shed Whitaker of Mossy Oak. Today's episode, we have Mr. Gary Robertson, the owner of Burnham Brothers Game Calls, and also uh, Gary has the Carnivore TV show as well. So, Gary, it's a pleasure to have you here. And like I said, when we kind of first got on there kind of the last couple of days doing a little driving and, you know, here in the office and around the house, been kind of listening to some of your stuff. And my impression is just what a heck of a nice human being you are, which led me then to ask you, as we started, you know, how the heck you met up with somebody like Dustin Shed Whitaker, but you can say the same about me too. I'm just not as nice a guy as what, uh, what you seem to be. So pleasure to have you well, here with us. Thank you, Gary.
0: Well, I appreciate that. I, you know, I, I hope that comes across in, in some of the things we do, because, uh, you know, I feel like that's that's hugely important, and, uh, you know, I always tell people, I just try to treat them the way I want to be treated, kind of the old golden rule, mm-hmm. and hopefully, hopefully we've done that through the years, and and uh, I, I hope to continue to act in that fashion.
2: Well, you know, I, I do a lot of hunt, try to do a lot of hunting, but mainly deer <laughs> hunting. I Now, I predator hunt as I'm deer hunting, but I've never really gone out to predator hunt, so I don't know a whole lot uh, about it myself, so I learned a lot of things listening, but again, the one thing that came through above all things was a good human being, and, uh, you know, talking about the golden rule, it seems like in today's world, we don't quite have quite as much of that, treating other folks the way we want to be treated, really, it's just about a lost art. That's what really came through to me more than things I I learned listening to you, was Uh, be good to folks and and, that's important and we we just don't uh, we don't have that uh, in today's society like we like we once did hopefully hopefully having you around and keep that going a little bit
0: well hopefully we can if we're going to turn this world around we you know that's one of the first things we have to do you know is is bring back those values and that's the neat thing about honey with it's been really good to me i've been able to meet so many great people and and i think you know, we brought a lot, some, a lot of young people into the game and, and hopefully uh, they picked up not only on, uh, you know, what we were doing or how we were hunting, but hopefully they picked up on, um, on, on some of those values that we, were, that we try to promote as well.
2: Well, Gary, give us a little background. Debbie. You're a Texan, uh, but go back as far as you want to go, as far as who you are, kind of how you got started uh, in, the, in the outdoor industry and what's led you where you are today.
0: Course I, I think I'm a fifth or sixth generation Texan. I was born and raised on a ranch south of San Antonio about 40 miles. I uh, grew up where you know I could go out the back door with 22 rifle and a, and a dog and and we were hunting, you know, within 100 yards of the house and and could do that any time I wanted. So I was truly blessed. I graduated from college. I didn't graduate from A&M, I graduated from Southwest Southwest Texas State, which is now Texas State, in about '75, and uh, went to work for the Federal Land Bank, uh, making farm and ranch loans across, you know, in Texas, and and moved around the state with them, and then got into commercial banking, and that's how I ended up in, in Menard, Texas, in about 1985. Uh, then I bought out. Of course, I deer hunted all my life, predator hunted since I was like 10, killed my first whitetail when I was hunting by myself at age seven <laughs> uh, with an old Winchester model, 94, 30, 30, like everybody else did. And uh, anyway, so uh, in, in, the, in the 80s, I uh, really got more into predator hunting and, and had the opportunity to hunt with Murray Burnham who owned Burnham Brothers Game Calls at that time. When he sold his company in 1991, I bought the company from him and moved it from Marble Falls, where it was originally started, to Menard, Texas, where I was president of the bank. And it didn't take long to figure out that I couldn't do both jobs. I couldn't you know, run the bank and, and also run Burner Brothers. So and I made a decision to chase four-legged coyotes instead of two-legged coyotes, <laughs> and, and that's what we did. And then of course, uh, oh, I, we did a series of videos for mossy oak back in what was it, shed back in the early 2000s hmm. maybe. Yeah, early 2000s. We, we did five in a row. I, we did five in a row, and we we y'all came up with a great idea to name that series video series eyes front, which is yeah. one of the qualities that maybe the most important quality of, of a predator. In a predator's eyes are set in the front of his skull and by a system of triangulation he can judge distance up to his uh, to his prey and that gives him the ability to catch prey and uh, so y'all came up with that great title uh, and we did like I say five each year we did one uh, a video and we did that five years in a row and those were pretty popular uh, uh, after we did the first one and it was successful cuz wouldn't let me off the hook and then I guess in 2010 Shed convinced me and, and helped me get started with the TV show carnivore which took off and we you know it aired on the pursuit channel and was very popular from the get-go wasn't it Shed? Um,
1: mm-hmm. yeah we were I first several years it was the number one rated show on the pursuit network and probably at the time probably the number one rated predator show out there if you looked at the at the numbers and and now it's changed so much with youtube and you know a lot of these other networks that you know i i don't keep track of all the numbers like we used to but it it uh you know at the time it it was it it was doing really well
2: what are you about year 12 now is that somewhere around there
1: Well, we're airing season
0: 11 right now, and uh, I wanted to, you know, I set a goal to do 10, and then I called, uh, visited with our buddy Dennis Presley, and I said, you know, Dennis, I'm going to hang it up. That was going to be the end of it, and he said, you can't. He said, you're still the number one rated show on the channel. (laughs) He said, we, you know, we need you to stay on, so... So they made me a deal I couldn't refuse and we went on and did season 11. and now I think I'm probably gonna do uh, season 12 and then after that, I don't know. you know, uh, I'm 68 years old and most guys are like, you know when are you gonna retire And I say, well, why would you retire when you' when you're doing something that you love? Because yeah. uh, I'm gonna be hunting and, and so dragging a camera doesn't slow me down that much. In fact, I'm slowing down a little bit, so maybe it's just keeping pace with me. But, uh, of course, Steve, my, my youngest son, does the field work for me most of the time. And then, uh, so that, that makes it nice too. It's kind of a family affair. We can kind of go at our own pace. And, and we've been blessed to, you know, to be able to get to hunt a lot of big country and a, a lot of places that, you know, other folks may not be able to go. Uh, and of course, we love hunting the big public ground out in New Mexico and Arizona. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to do it at, probably at least one more year. Then after that, I'm making no promises.
1: Now, do y'all still have the uh, blockhouse building down on the on the border? We that do
0: makes- not. Uh, we had that, as you know, that was our camp. Uh, Shed's been there many times with us. It was a It was a little primitive. You had to run the rats out. And uh, one time I went in one night and there were two rattlesnakes in the house. And you might get visitors from south of the border. Uh, In fact, that's a real problem now. But uh, the the fellow that owned that ranch decided that he was gonna run livestock on it. And of course, they'd never had any stock on it when we were out there, but uh, he said, you know, he he didn't want to lease it anymore. So we lost that and I hated to lose that house because it did have so much character.
1: Yeah, that that uh I tell I mean we had of course we hunted out there numerous times, but that there was always a story every time we went, whether it was who had broke into the building or what was in the building or, you know, whether the uh, <laughs> they were gonna show up and see if you were actually a legitimate American that was stamped up there oh yeah we had helicopters come in the one time we were filming <laughs> chasing uh, uh border patrol yeah. chasing people i mean it was it was a fun place for sure there was like you
0: say there was always a story there was always some excitement that you didn't expect when you left the house to go out there it was uh it, it's wild country and uh one thing about it, you better have carried everything you were going to need when you got there because, uh, what did it take 45 minutes to get back to any type of road? Uh, mm-hmm. You had to drive through ranch land for 45 minutes and rough roads across a canyon to get to it. So, uh, once you got to it, of course, there was no electricity, no running water, and things, you know, we. You got a little stinky sometime before you left there, <laughs> uh, but that was the good old days.
2: Now, Gary, going back to when you were a president of a bank, and you know one one thing I look at with young people, a lot of them today are afraid to chase their dreams, afraid to st- get away from their comfort zone. But that had to be difficult coming home to your wife and saying, "Hey, I'm I'm not going to be president of the bank anymore. I, I'm going to I bought a game call company. I'm going to I'm going to go hunting." How did that go, and, and how did you feel about it personally? Were you were you a little, I don't know if this will work out or not, but I'm going to try it, and if it doesn't, I can always go back. What was your thoughts then?
1: Well,
0: she probably thought I was crazy, yeah. but that's, you know, Deb and I have been married since 1975, and she's always been supportive, supportive of whatever decision that, that I made, uh, and she got on board, and she's part of this company. I mean she's part she's more important than I am she she you know she calls a lot of the shots she keeps the books and uh, whatever I need she's there to support me and that's the way it has to be in a marriage you know uh, you from the time you're married you're a team and uh, you know you have to support each other like say I couldn't ask for a better teammate than, than Deb is so she probably thought I was crazy but we made it work yeah
2: well that's outstanding. That's what you gotta have. It's it's teamwork working together and although there may be hesitations if you gotta have somebody supporting you and that's what you need to to get through it and you obviously you made the right move. You know, and being happy and uh, when you go to work and it doesn't feel like you're working, that's that's awful hard to beat that. So That's hard
1: to
0: beat that. It sure but is. I tell I tell young folks, you know, in any decision you make in life, you you have to know from the minute you make it that, that it's it is the right decision and you never look back. You just you just make it work. So that's what we did. we did. And hopefully we'll we'll be doing it a few more years and then uh then we'll make a decision you know I'll probably retire and maybe Steve will pick it up. I don't know.
2: Now how much easier with your this being your 11th season, how much easier is it now to do the show than when you first started as far as the responsibility of, of getting the sponsors that you need and is it a lot different? Is it a lot easier now that you've been established and done well?
0: Well, we have, you know, we have really good sponsors, but uh, it's more competitive now getting sponsors because there's so many TV shows out there. As, as Dustin can tell you, there, you know, everybody's fighting over the same sponsors. So, you know, it's it's a little bit more competitive. But like I say, our sponsors are great. We've had them for years, and and uh, hope to keep them.
2: Somebody wanting to start doing some predator hunting and I take myself for example like say if I'm bow hunting or you know deer hunting gun hunting a cow comes in all being legal of course you know all under the guidelines of, uh, of doing it right that's mainly been when I predator hunted but so to step away from that and and just actually doing predator hunting what would you what advice would you give somebody what are the basics that someone would need to know to kind of get started predator hunting well, like you do
0: I think uh you know, the, predator hunting right now is is the fastest growing shooting sport and hunting, you know, hunting sport. So there's more predator hunters now than ever. And uh, so there's a lot of guys out there that are new to the game. And and I, I tell folks, you know, what's different about this new generation is, and I can take them on a hunt. And after I take them on a hunt, uh, the next time we go out there, telling me how to do it. You know, it seems like you know they they educate a lot quicker than I did. You know, I uh, I uh, I love to hunt with older guys. Uh, when I was a kid growing up, uh, I hunted with guys that were in their sixties. And you know, when I was in high school, and it made a lot of my buddies mad because I, I wouldn't hunt with them, and it wasn't because I didn't like them. It was because I knew. If I was going to get better at the game, I needed to go with someone that knew more about it than I did. So, I knew I hunted more than anybody else my age. So I had to, you know, pursue those guys and 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 uh, get permission to hunt with them. And and uh, that's where I learned. Uh, my dad was not a hunter. My grandfather was, but he passed away when I was in first grade. So uh, I didn't get to hunt with him. Uh, I had a great uncle that kind of took me under his wing and got me started deer hunting. But, uh, you know, there weren't that many guys in those days that were predator hunters. And when I found one, you know, I latched on to him. And and uh, those are the guys that educated me. But the basics are, you know, are concealments, and that's where Mossy Oak comes in so strong. Uh, you've got to get into an area without disturbing that area. So I like to work into the wind to hide any vehicle noise that i might have and get away from that vehicle you know walk in to make a call the first sound that you want that animal to hear is the sound of your call and of course i like to play the wind i like to like say work into the wind and when i set up to call I'd, i really don't like the wind hitting me on the back of the neck because it's polluting the area where that where that sound is going on a coyote if he gets us whiff of me, he's out of there. Now, a cat, I can get away with it. A lot of people uh, you know, think a cat is more difficult to call, but actually, to me, a cat is easier to call. Uh, he may not travel the large distance to get to you like a coyote will, but a cat is, depends so much more, so much on his eyes and his ears, and I can trick him on, with those. Uh, like I say, with really good camo, sitting in the shade, not moving, I can kind of trick his eyes, uh, also I you know I can trick his ears by you know giving him good sound, and uh, we'll get into that a little bit later on, but having a a call that you can operate remotely really helps you there. Keep his attention you know focused on something other than you but that those are key things. It's just you know woodsman's you know you have to have some woodsman skills. Uh, but they're basic, you know, no matter what you're going to call a uh, turkey, you don't worry about the wind because he's not going to smell you. Even though there was the guy at one time, I think, made a pretty good living selling cover scent for turkeys. <laughs> remembers those days. Uh, th- but those are just, they're just the basic hunting things. You know, where to set up to make a call, I think, 80% of calling success is dictated by what where you put your butt down. Uh, you, you've got to be able to take it advantage of the terrain and uh, of course in in my country right here it's pretty flat and in parts of your country it's pretty flat so you know it's not broken like a lot of the country out west that we call it where I think it is a little bit more critical and how to set up because so many of these predators know how to use any kind of little draw ditch drainage to get right in under you uh, without being seen and that's that's the way they make their living.
2: Is is there any smarter or tougher animal than a coyote in your opinion?
0: A, te- a wild hog is, you know, is I'll tell you, is too sharp too. But uh, an animal that you call in, he's the sharpest, with without a doubt, in my opinion. Now, wolf is in the same family, so yeah, wolf is as well. But coyotes, yeah, they're they're way more intelligent than. Uh, than anything else I call in. You know, I I rattle a lot of whitetails and love rattling whitetails, and I love calling turkey in the spring. Used to hunt every single day of the turkey season, never missed a day, especially when Bruce Brady was alive, but uh, he'd come out from Mississippi and stay the whole season with me. But those animals, to me, were not as thinking, as much of a thinking animal. They were more reactionary they reacted to the stimuli you gave them and and they weren't you know like say that turkey doesn't have a, a sense of smell so that coyote he's he's very intelligent he knows he knows where the wind's from even when you can't sense it uh he knows how to arrive you know you're calling in his living room he knows how to get there undercover most of the most of the way, unless he's really bold and just wants to show you where he is, and then once he gets there, he's such a good athlete. Um, if you don't get him stopped, he's he's pretty tough to kill. I'm kind of a purist. I, I use a rifle, and uh, I'm old fashioned. I use a bolt gun. So getting that coyote up and getting him in a position where I can kill him cleanly is, you know, that that's what I want to do. I don't like to get one up there, booger him, and then you know be chasing him to try to get him on the ground. That's uh, he's usually going to beat me if that happens.
2: Do you ever have a cow come into you when he doesn't have the wind in his face? Does he always try to get downwind of
0: you? He's always going to get da- Try to get <clears throat> downwind of the source of the sound. Uh, so if I've got if I'm blowing the call and the wind's from left to right, I'm ready to shoot on this side, to my right, because I know that's where he's going to end up. If I've got the call out there, the same thing. Uh, what what we find is in this flat country, you know, if the wind's from here, it's probably going to stay there. But when we get out in New Mexico, Arizona, in that big open broke broken country, even in the Texas Panhandle, a lot of times I'll sit down to make a call, and I think the wind's here, and in a few minutes it's over here, you know. So then when I realize that's what's happening, and then i I change the way i'm set up Uh, when i feel that wind switch wham instead of getting ready to take the shot here i'm going to cheat over and try to be able to cover the left hand side of the call because that's where he's come so that's the neat thing about using a lot of people use decoys that motorized i like to use a turkey tail feather and i just stick it in the ground out there on a little fiberglass rod close to the call, and when that wind switch is switches, I know where to get ready to take the shot. It's just another way to cheat a little mm-hmm. bit, and I don't mind cheating on a Kayo.
2: <laughs> now, what uh, what's your preference calling wise? You you sit down. What's the first your go to call? What what is it you're using?
0: I tell you what I, I i'm old-fashioned as as i've already stated i love you know the grown cottontail sound uh to me it's a sound that carries really well and in a lot of our country we need that extra volume that sound that carries out there and i've seen coyotes coming from over a mile away and you say how, how can you do that well if you get the sun at a low angle you know this bright sun that we get uh at a low angle behind you, it'll light up the front ends on these coyotes. Cause a lot of, most of the time, when they're really well haired, uh, they'll have a big white chest on them. And you'll see just the tiniest white speck out there moving. And uh, that I'll generally get it in you know my scope or binocular. I don't carry binoculars, so I'll get him in the scope and verify that's what it is. But uh, like I say, I've seen coyotes come from over a mile away. And, uh, so that it's amazing what they can hear but but they can uh, but that's you know just one of the crazy things about a coyote. you know they if he's hungry and uh and he hears the call, it's hard for him to, to not come to that grown cottontail sound
2: now how long how long will you call when you when you start now, I've seen some shows and in the it's probably been years ago, but where the call would just be continuous just stay on and is that realistic in in the wild does that happen or what do you do
0: uh that's not realistic uh you know I've I've been lucky to see a you know fox catch a cottontail and I've seen a have seen a coyote catch a jackrabbit before and the what those predators try to do when they catch that prey animal is they want that prey animal to quit squealing Because if that animal, if that prey animal keeps squealing, chances are he may have to share it with somebody or a bigger coyote may come in and take it away from him or a bigger predator in the case of a fox. So, what they do is they try to silence that squealing as quick as they can. So, to me, it's more realistic to play off and on. You know, I may play a sound, you know, 15, 20 seconds and shut her off for a couple of minutes. Another reason I like to do that especially when I'm calling a coyote is he knows pretty well where that sound's coming from when he hears it. But I may not, if I'm blowing the call, I don't necessarily want him blowing out, you know, and looking right at me uh, because that makes it difficult for me to move on him. If he's, if he's got a visual on something that's strange. So if he comes out and I'm not blowing the call, he may be looking a little bit more for where the, you know, where that sound came from but it's just more realistic to kind of play the sound, the call off and on, or blow the call off and on.
2: Now, if someone's calling, and you're not hitting the frequencies that that animals, can, or coyotes in this example, can hear at, do they know that and then know that, hey, that's, they may not know it's a person, but they does that alert them that not really? Well,
0: that, that's something that you're, you're hitting on something that we've really started working on for the, about the last four years and it was something that i've known for over 20 years i've known that these animals coyotes fox bobcats all these predators can hear at ultrasonic frequencies all of us have seen the old silent dog whistles and we can't hear a sound other than the wind going through that call yet the the, the dogs will respond to it so I finally, five years ago, I found speakers that would produce ultrasonics. And when I found those, I was like, this is now, this gives me the ability to produce what I've wanted to build for 25 years. And that was a call that would produce those ultrasonic sounds. A lot of your mouth calls will produce all the ultrasonic sounds, which to date, every, every prey animal that we have captured and recorded and, of course, tested on an oscilloscope, every one of those sounds has gone over 40,000 hertz. Well, 20,000 hertz is where ultrasonic levels are. Anything above that is ultrasonic. Well, all of these prey animals are at least twice that. The first baby cottontail we ever captured and recorded and a little bitty rabbit went over 90,000 hertz. Every electronic caller that's been built since the original records, those 78 records back in the 1950s, peaked at about 15,000 hertz. And to date, that's the level that all the electronics go to. Uh, If you go into an area that has never been called before, those calls still work great. It's where we see the success rate drop is when you go back the second time. You'll, your response is generally about half and the third time you go in there you can almost forget calling up the coyote they're already educated to that false sound that fake sound that's produced by you know calls that won't hit those ultrasonic frequencies and that's what was happening to us we're no different than anybody else there's a big ranch that i grew up close to in south texas and i've hunted for over 20 years 30 years probably and we had called that place for years with our old compu callers, which would go to about 15, 17,000 Hertz. And we had gotten to the point where we could not call up a coyote with those calls. Uh, in fact, you'd turn the call on and the coyotes would bark at you. They were like, eh, the jig's up. We know, you know, that's not right. And so they're not only telling you they're not coming, what they're doing is warning barking and they're warning off other coyotes that may want to come. So, what we went back to in the in that particular ranch was strictly hand calls because a lot of these hand calls go buck over forty thousand hertz. Well, a coyote hears to forty five thousand hertz, and a cat will hear to sixty five thousand hertz. So, when we went back to hand calls in the areas where I couldn't call up anything with my old electronic call, immediately started having luck again. So. The last two years, of course, we've carried this new ultrasonic call back to that country, and we're we're having great success again, because we're getting 45 to 47,000 hertz on the top end with this new call, and uh, so this is it's been a huge game changer for us, uh, and of course, what it has caused us to do is a lot of extra work. Uh, Dustin knows, you know, we've we had over 100 sounds that we had recorded, but we have to re-record all of those sounds because unless those sounds were recorded ultrasonically, they will never be able to predict go ultrasonic. So here we are, you know. Now we're trying to build back an ultrasonic sound lab, sound library.
2: Now, when will you have that out, or is that already out?
0: You well, we of course we've been using prototypes for about two years, but. We're in the process of trying to get. We placed a PO for 3,000 units, and we're like everybody else. We're having trouble getting microchips to build those. Yeah. Pro, that call right now. Uh, hopefully, uh, we think we're going to be able to get the chips to to start production on those 3,000. Uh, at by by January one is what they're telling us. Uh, the bad thing is. We have a waiting list of eighty over eighty five hundred people wanting that call uh, because every you know it's common sense. There's everybody that can uh, understand this much about ultrasonics knows why this product will will change the calling game is mm-hmm. because of what it can do. So everybody that calls wants wants one of these new calls, and it looks like we're going to call it we we're going to call it the rogue and uh, we had a, uh, a company at the last minute decided they wanted to fight us using that name so we're going to call it the freak f-r-e-q which is not only kind of yeah. a super freak but it, <laughs> also, it also hits on sound
2: frequency yes it does that's pretty cl- now, that's you, clay, know, man,
0: you like that f-r-e-q yeah, yeah. so it's kind of i actually I, I like the name better
2: yeah
1: so it looks like that's what it will be called and I know that I mean even when we were working together it you was something you were you were working on then. I mean this has been something that's been going on for over ten years trying to 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 line something new up. So I know that You're right, Jed. It's something I wanted
0: to do and until we I found speakers being built in Germany that you know would go to that frequency, I, I couldn't do it. I we you know we just couldn't do the project. Yeah, But once we found those and realized, hey, you can build an ultrasonic speaker, then game on. Here we went.
2: Now, well, some so, Are there some competitors that are now trying to, to do that to catch up with you? Does your patent allows so much time that somebody won't be able to jump in there well, and try we, to do it as well? We,
1: uh, we
0: filed six patents on this, this and the technology. So hopefully that will, you know, we'll be able to, protect us for a period of time because this has been difficult uh i mean it wasn't just okay we get an ultrasonic speaker here we go well we found out you we had to build an ultrasonic recorder as well to record the sounds and then uh, found out you you know it takes more than one speaker to handle that total spectrum of all the sounds so we had to redesign. We had to design another low-end frequency speaker to hit the real low end.
2: So one low and uh, one high, probably right.
0: That's exactly right. And so, uh, but the sound quality, of course, it sounds great to us, but is so much better from down even below two hundred hertz, the real low frequency, because of this low-end uh, low frequency speaker. And then on the top, then it phases out as the frequencies go up, and uh, would we'll go up to forty-seven thousand on the top end. But that most all of that, all of that's going through the ultrasonic speaker. Now, so they have to work. Those speakers have to work in unison.
2: And I had heard you, I think, talk about years ago when you when you first started knowing that they were making some sounds that they were communicating, but you couldn't hear them. And you, you know, like when a dog turns his head kind of to the side, you, you know he's hearing something, but yet you can't hear anything. Is that kind of what triggered it in in your mind when you started seeing, hey, there's they're communicating. I just can't I just can't pick it up.
0: Yes, that. And I've seen them hunting and see the same thing. I, like we hunt a lot up around Tucumcari, New Mexico, and if you've ever been up there, uh, you know how open that country is. Well, that gave that really gave me the ability to study coyotes when they were hunting. You know, when nothing was bothering them, we'd, we'd go up there deer hunting, and I, I'd, I'd watch pair, coyotes hunting in pairs, and they might be hunting down a wash. And and I could, one coyote would stop, and I could tell he made some kind of sound. They were close enough that I could hear them, but there was no audible sound to me. And I could tell the other one heard it. And then I could tell they were talking to each other, make you know, by the, their gestures. And then they would change directions on how they were hunting. Well, Sam told Joe, you know, <laughs> hey, let's instead of hunting west, let's turn and go back this other direction. And and they knew it. And then I've watched him catch uh, a fawn in South Texas one time, uh, which is a little bit longer story. But you know, the uh, there was a, a doe and a fawn at a stock tank, and uh, two young coyotes came in, just big old pups and uh they went into the tall grass where this doe and fawn were and that old doe put them out of there and i mean you know ran them off you know like she's trying to strike them with her feet and away they went she came back when she ran them off got back in there with the we in the taller grass and in a few minutes here comes a, the two pups back but they've got a big male with them now well <laughs> the uh the old male goes in there. The two pups sit back, and uh, sure enough, the old doe comes out chasing the male. When he does, the two pups run in there, and they've got the fall. And of course, before they did that, they're over there, you know, communicating with each other. Obviously, there was no sound that I could hear. They're within fifty yards, so I'm like, they're cheating, they're talking, and I can't. I don't <laughs> know what they're saying. Then I, I had the fortune of sitting on a uh in an oak field in south texas one day and we had some hunters coming in and they you know for deer and so we were doing a little scouting and uh, anyway so i was just sitting in the oak patch and and uh, right about sundown i looked down the brush line and a, there's about a half-grown bobcat walks out sits down in the edge of the just in the brush line looking out into the field and uh i'm not going to shoot the, the kitten so few minutes later there was absolutely it was dead calm there was no sound all of a sudden i hear a fawn get caught by something a predator obviously behind me well it's before before that i hear that bleeding sound this kitten takes off running across the corner of that field he and he gets about Halfway across the field, maybe 50 yards into the field, and then that's when I hear the distress sound that fawn being captured, and and he's already running straight to it. Well, how did that kitten know that that fawn was going to be caught with well, it when there was no sound? And I was thinking that mother that mother of that kitten must have communicated that she had this fawn and was about to catch it, yeah. because here he comes. He's already running, and then I hear the distress sound. So. Again, there's a lot that goes on out there in mother, you know, that mother nature that the average guy doesn't pick up. on.
2: Sure is incredible animals. Just give them probably enough credit that they really deserve.
0: That's right. And that's what I, that's one of the things I preach to young guys that are getting into this game. You cannot give a coyote too much respect. You've got to, you've got to respect him to the nth degree. If you don't, you'll never really be good at this game. And when guys go with me to hunt, they're like, Oh, you know, we're driving across a big open ranch or some public land. And they were like, when are you going to stop? When are you going to make a call? You know? And I said, I'm not going to make a call until I'm seeing fresh sign. And I have see the call that i want to make where i have everything in working from in my favor i don't want to give that coyote anything because if i do he's going to beat me he's going to get my wind he's going to see me going in uh he may be set, i may have to set up where I'm, i can't be concealed and uh so i'm just real picky about making calls i you know when i was young i'd made 20 calls a day uh and Probably 10 to 15 of them were good calls and the rest were junk. Now I make 10 calls a day and they're all good ones. <laughs> so, uh, And I'll probably kill about as many. The only thing is I, I don't get to and from the truck as fast as I used to. Chad <laughs> knows about that. <laughs> you got
2: to enjoy the walk a little bit more these you know, these days.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm looking more for airheads and tracks nowadays <laughs> when I walk back to the truck. <laughs>
2: Uh, now, how long do you sit when you when you find that right spot where things are in your favor? How, how long will you stay there before you move on to another location?
0: It depends on what I'm trying to call. If I'm trying to call coyotes, uh, you know, saying in South Texas, I'm generally there for 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, if I'm trying to call a cat, I'm going to be there at least 30 minutes. And it all goes back to, you know, they hunt in different styles. You know a coyote is he rushes you know to his game, Uh, so most of the time you see a coyote when he's really sold on 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 the sound that you're making, he's at least loping if not running wide open to you. So it doesn't take him long to to cover half a mile. I mean he's coming, but that cat hunts in a totally different fashion. You you've watched your your house cat in the backyard trying to catch a squirrel. They're sneakers and they use every bit of cover to come to the call another thing that really uh, in studying cats come into calls in open country i've noticed that a lot of the reason it takes them longer too not only are they sneakers and rarely get into a trot or run coming in but they're also very easily distracted and i think that goes back to intelligence and I tell folks, if your cat's smarter than your dog, you better find your new dog. <laughs> that's right. Because that cat's not as smart as that dog. Mm-hmm. And uh, say he's, and I've seen this. Say he's, he's coming to the call, and a and a rabbit jumps out from under a bush right in front of him. Wham! He quits me and he's chasing the rabbit. Or if the if a covey quail flies up in front of him, bam! He's on the quail. He loses his attention span is not as long, mm-hmm. and that's another. That's a reason you know. I said I don't call as much as often. When I'm trying to call coyotes, I want to be a little more realistic. But if I'm just targeting cats, I'll leave the call running most of the time. And that, the reason is when he loses attention, his attention span gets a little bit short, and he's chasing that rabbit. I want him to hear that, that call and get him back on me. I want him to get him back in my game. So I think if you keep that call running, you're probably a little more successful on cats and probably get him to you a little bit quicker.
2: Now, were you Bobcats? Do you hunt those mainly at, at night or, cause I know they don't show themselves or at least on my cameras and my experience of hunting, you just don't see them very much at all. First light and last light. And that's at that, you yeah. know, so.
0: Well, we, uh, for, you know, when I was younger, I did a lot of night hunting, but I've, it's the older I get, I do less, number one, cause you know, if you hunt all day, you, you're wore out, you need to sleep at night. Uh, but I just, I'm a daytime caller. And you know, I have pretty good luck calling cats in the daytime, uh, especially early and late. You know, I've called them at high noon if it's cold and cloudy, but just get, i think the secret to cats is never you know is to get where you're finding cat sign doesn't have to be a lot but if you know if you can't if you're not finding it get a go around you know a stock tank water uh, in this country is of course pretty short you have way more of it than we do but the secret cats like thickets they're going to be in the thickest cover there is so just remember that just set up where you can call to that thicket. And even in daylight, I have pretty good luck of pulling them out of those thickets. They may not cross a, you know, a, a wheat field or, or, or plowed ground to come to you, uh, but just call where you've got a big enough opening that you can see them when they do come, emerge from that cover because chances are that's where they are. Uh, but calling early and late to those thickets is where I have my success.
2: And when your calling sequence is done, is there a specific, you want to be moved so far, you just go to where, again, the conditions are right. Is there a certain distance you like to get?
0: Well, I like to go where I don't think I, the my sound has reached before. In other words, I don't want to overlap uh, calling the same area. I like to get, typically I'll go a mile in most country uh, before I make a call and that's into the breeze or into into pressure uh so uh, calling these cats another thing we really noticed uh using the new ultrasonic calls is they're much more comfortable when they come to the call uh shed can tell you you know when we'd call up a cat in the daylight you know they'd run in and when they realize they were duped they're pretty much getting out of there we videoed in two days in a row of uh, back-to-back we had cats that stayed over 15 minutes at the call. They were so sure that it was real. When they started to leave, I would just pick up the volume on the call or change sounds and bam, they were right back to it. And we, we did a whole, one of the episodes we did on Carnivore this year, the whole show was on one bobcat that was all we did and and we showed how different stimuli we were able to keep that cat there and how he reacted to it
2: now would that happen so, with a coyote
0: no sir Because wow. sooner or later <laughs> he's gonna he's gonna smell rat yeah. but we can we can trick that cat
2: you know of course dogs and you know i've listened to crime shows and things and of course with deer and hunting and thinking about you know my scent control and how Feel like you get in and get out unscathed, but you know deer can still go by your tree eight or ten hours later and, and, and know that you were there, even though you think you get out of there cleanly. Sure. Of course, dogs being able to smell so much better even than a deer. What do you do there as far as your scent control? Walking out and putting your call out and
0: in the old uh, up until the last two years, I, I played the wind strictly. You know, occasionally I would use uh, real skunk essence, the real stuff and that that got to be pretty nauseating uh but i found another product that's almost as nauseating and it's called predator death grip and it's made from coyote urine glands and that sort of stuff and what i do is when i walk that call out there i spray the call right around the call and then as i'm walking back to where i'm going to set up i'm misting it along the way because when, as you said, when you walk out there, you're laying a scent trail too. Yep. So I missed along the trail as, as I'm walking back. And then when I sit down, if the wind's blowing here, I'm going to be spraying bushes on that side of me. I'm do, I'm, and, and, I, and I hope that I don't smell worse than this stuff does. <laughs> but I have found that I can generally confuse a coyote's nose long enough to get him killed with this. Where in the past, Like you say, when you walk that call out there, you're laying the scent down. And when they got downwind of it, as Shed can tell you, boom, they were out. But with this stuff, I've even had them come in, get the scent off the call. But once they smell, when they smell, what they're doing is they're smelling this product, they'll actually stop and hike their leg instead of breaking and running. Well, when they do that, it's all over. (laughs) Even mine. So it is a big cheater. I really go through a lot of it because when you're <laughs> misting your way all the way out there and back, yeah, you're going to use a lot of product.
2: That sounds like a good cologne for shed, doesn't it? Predator Death Grip.
0: Sure, <laughs> <laughs> my wife would love. Oh, it. she
2: would. She would.
0: <laughs> I know the boys would.
2: <laughs> you know, uh, you know, deer hunting. Of course, you know weather, and you know you hear about moon phase a lot. You know, and all those things playing. Do you, do you see the effects of that? Does the moon have? Uh, any influence on uh, on your hunting? And I'm sure the weather does, front's coming in. But what do you see with both of those things?
0: Well, I think weather will override the moon faces, but I, I am a firm believer in, you know, the salooner tables and active feeding times. Uh, I see it all the time. Uh, and my calling success is, if, if everything equal, your calling success is going to be greatest when it is an active feeding time. Uh, and I've studied that since about 1995 It's when I started studying, you know, calling success and how it related to, you know, to the moon. Uh, in fact, I think Wayne Fierce wrote an article he hunted with me back then an uh, article in progressive farmer. And, and so we discussed this and, and I still watch it. Uh, I've got it on my, uh, uh, cell phone, I've got a fish hunt app and it gives me those times. And what it tells me is, you know, I'm going to be out there from daylight till dark most anyway, anyway. But if it shows that it's an active feeding time at noon, I don't want to be at the dairy queen or the Whataburger. burger. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I want to be calling it. And then when that period passes, then I'll get me something to eat. But, uh, you know, so I'll work around that active feeding time. But of course, I do believe that weather will override that.
2: Is there a time of year that's better than another, uh, or just when when you can be out there, be out there? Or are there times that its peak activity is a little better? Uh,
0: I I like to go in the cool months. You know, these predators have fur coats, and when it's colder, they're burning more calories. They're going to be eating more. They're going to be more active. So the colder it is, the 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 better it is so my months my favorite months are december through through february and uh you know if the wind's blowing 90 miles out of the north you might as well sit and sit at the house but the rest of the time you know i'm out there
2: how, how about the night hunting you mentioned that a little bit earlier do you, do you do a lot of night hunting and do you enjoy it as much as the i don't do much
0: day? anymore but night hunting, I, I tell you, you will really see those active feeding times to me play out even stronger at, at night. You'll, you know, you think, okay, there, there's a, T, a G and gray fox in this country and, and raccoon, and they all, all of those come to a call. I don't have that many cats or coyotes right where I live, but you will see those, those active feeding times really play strong when you hunt all, when you hunt at night. You'll hit spells where you you know there's 10 Gig and Fox, and you can't buy one. And then when it gets that active feeding time, you may have six or eight on one call, you know, just running around the pickup. So that, that really shows strong, like say, at night. If you're going to really concentrate on killing a bobcat, like you talked about uh, earlier, them being more active at, at dark, that's the best time to kill a bobcat. If that's what you're really targeting and it's legal in your state, yeah, go out, go out after dark and you know, and call for cats. I like to call the daytime because I think the video is so much better. But if I, if I was really, you know, say a rancher was paying me by the head to go kill, a, kill the bobcats off the place, I'd be out there after dark.
2: You know, I, I grew up, I guess when I started bow hunting, it had been late 70s, early 80s. And so with a bow in your hand, it was easy to get permission to hunt places, you know, because nobody really thought you were going to kill anything. Or so, kill anything, hey, anybody. have at it. Now, gun hunting, you know, is a different story, and but that's only gotten worse. You know, it's hard to find any, a place to hunt these days. Do, do you find it with predator hunting that you get a lot more permission than somebody that's asking to deer hunt, or, or do you go out and lease oh, yeah. properties? Uh, what what oh, have you we seen with it?
0: I will not pay to anybody to hunt their predators. Uh, you know we're taxed. You and I pay taxes for predator control. You know government agencies do that. You know here we're doing it for free. And and a, and a lot of the ranches that we hunt, we're in there because they want us in there hunting. They want somebody in there shooting those coyotes. So like I say, we're blessed there. Uh, and of course, public land, you can you know it's open. It's open to all types of predator hunting. But even here in texas because it you know most all the land is is privately owned it's gotten a little more difficult and there are people that are paying for predator hunting rights i don't like it but they are there is and you may have heard of it they it's called the big bobcat contest here in san angelo and they'll have as times they'll have over 700 teams sign up to do that 24-hour hunt And the biggest Bobcat, whoever kills the biggest Bobcat weight wise might win as much as $50,000. So those guys are willing to pay a little money to go on what they think is good land to increase their odds of killing that big Bobcat that's gonna maybe buy a lot of guns and ammo for the next (laughs) year It may feed the family. That's what's caused there to be, you know, for people to to actually pay for predator hunting rides, which, like, I say, I'm not in favor of.
2: Gear, what what gear do you use? What what do you have with you? What's your must have things on you from gun make, model, those type of things?
0: Again, I'm old fashioned, and I'm and I'm and I'm and I'm old. I'm 68. Okay. I don't like to carry a lot of junk into the field, uh, so the lighter I can go, the better. And you know, let's face it, if we're we're calling. Big open country, you're probably gonna walk, you know, six or eight miles a day just going to and from call stands. So, I, I go light, and in big open country, I shoot a Ruger American, nothing fancy, 22-250, uh, and it has a Trigicon 3 to 9 by 40 AccuPoint scope on it. I do use uh, the Swagger bipods; they're mounted to the gun. Uh, they just gives me the ability to you know i have a rest wherever i sit down and and the and i'll be you know i i i like to set the gun down and and have hand, be hands free so i may i can be more relaxed you know when i'm sitting there not having to hold a gun and holding holding shooting sticks uh, so i like the swagger bipod and i either wear one of those turkey lounger type vest that has a seat in the back so that i have some back support if you're making 10 to 15 calls a day that back support's good and it also makes you a better shooter if i don't have that on i'm carrying one of these little like turkey hunting chairs lightweight ones that'll give me get me off the ground a little bit and also give me that back support and of course nowadays most of the time i'm carrying the freak with me so i've got that electronic call and the gun and and a chair and that's it i tell
2: you the well, uh-huh. rubber american is hard to beat isn't it
0: it is mm-hmm. i you know it'll shoot half inch groups uh i shoot the hornady v max ammo 55 grains love it accuracy there if i'm hunting in south texas uh my go-to rifle is uh i like that i've got a little model 77 it's stainless has a laminated stock on it and it's in 223 uh it has the same Trigicon optics on it and of course i'm, I'm shooting the uh, generally shoot the 53 grain V-Max and hit. But in, in South Texas, my shots are generally inside a hundred yards. I don't need to, you know, I'm not gonna be reaching out. And for those that think the 223 won't kill the coyote, well, they're sure wrong. Uh, it's it's lethal. And I really, I really like that little round it, you know, now you need one of them recalled, but you can, you can see bullet impact with that 223.
2: Anything special you do in that moment of truth when you're getting ready to shoot? You know, a lot of people, motions get them and the, the pressure gets them. Is there anything you, mechanisms you try to use?
0: No, uh, I just tell folks that is the most difficult thing for a young predator hunter, especially on coyote, is to be able to handle your emotions when that moment of truth presents itself and and being able to recognize when that moment of truth is about to happen, to be on the gun and ready to take the shot. In other words, it's, it's no different than, if, than football or basketball. The more you you do this, this you begin to slow the game down. Yeah. And because in the old days when I was started calling coyotes, and I of course we I used all hand calls. You know, I'm blowing the call and that coyotes running dead at me and he's looking right at me. That was the most intimidating thing there was because any move I make or if he catches my scent, I mean, they can turn inside their hide and they're gone. It felt like everything was is to his advantage and it was and uh, that that was what was most difficult for me to get a coyote killed. You know when i was starting out now i've you know we try to we got a coyote that's acting in that fashion we try to bark to him, uh you know to get him to check up but before i bark i want to be on the gun and that's the nice thing about the electronics is he's most of the time his attention is directed right out there in front of me he's not looking at me gives me and gives me the ability to move a little easier
2: because the old window of opportunity on a predator is is pretty small so you don't, you don't have
0: coyote a... is really pretty small yes sir now bobcat not necessarily so because of the way he you know he sneaks in and he's generally not going to get in a hurry until he is spooked but you know that cat i've had him see me move go to the gun and that all that did was cause him to stop and look mm-hmm. which presented the perfect sight you know picture that that i wanted
2: Gary, what all do you have planned this fall and in December to February range also for Carnivore TV and for yourself? What hunting will you be doing? What uh, different animals will you be going after?
0: Well, I'll be hunting, uh, of course, we'll be hunting in the Navajo Net Reservation, probably some for do some calling and then we'll generally do a little lion hunting with dogs and in the spring, we'll get back in there and, and do some spring bear stuff with dogs because we still do about you know two or three episodes a year with dogs we'll we'll be calling up in the panhandle we uh, of course across texas the south part some some out in west texas and then uh, last year we started hunting a good bit up in the panhandle we've got some good buddies up there one of them one of them is a outdoor photographer and just a super guy fellow by the name of pecos Hagler. how's that for a texas <laughs> name <laughs> and uh, Pacus, uh, I met him, and he 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 has some great stuff on predators, uh, great photography. In fact, uh, I wrote a book last year, and it is entitled Eyes Front from the old Mossy Oak series. the The cover shot of of a, of that bobcat is one that Pacus took. So we we started hunting with him, and then of course we still hunt out in New Mexico on a couple of the, of the bigger ranches and. So we'll be going to those those areas. This next in fact this weekend I've got a gal coming in from uh uh Arizona that uh wants to hunt. We're gonna hunt southwest of here about a about an hour and a half and she uh that hunts with an organization called Trinity Oaks and she's she's uh she's battling cancer and uh her wish was to, to go on a predator hunt, so uh, we're taking her on a on a predator hunt down in Juno, Texas. If anybody knows where that is, south of Sonora.
2: Very sad, but it's also very rewarding for you to be able to do something like that. I'm sure somebody's going through what they're going through, and to be able to spend some of that time with you. Uh, you know, from the the lions, the big cats, mountain lions. Uh, anything different with them? Uh, you know, compared to the bobcats, are they a lot more reclusive? A lot harder to get out yeah. in the open?
0: You know, I think that what makes it difficult to call a, a lion is, you know, knowing where he is and and they move so much. You know, they, especially here in Texas, they, you know, they say they may have a hundred mile range out in the Big Bend country. And that's because there's, you know, there's the food sources are, are not that high. Once they find a good, you know, say a big herd of deer, they'll sit on them. And when I've hunted up north, say in Montana, you know, I know those lines don't move around much, uh, especially in the winter, those deer tend to yard up or, or may fall off in one valley. And those lines sit right there. You know, they, they don't leave. Uh, but out here, we don't have the, the hard winters and generally don't have the deer concentrated. So they do move a lot more. But I think that the, the, the cool thing about a lion is he doesn't have many natural enemies uh so he's you know he's the big he's the big dog and so he's not he comes boldly to call the the few that i've called up they don't you know they pretty much throw caution to the wind Uh, they come straight into the call and act a little more i will say the ones that I've called up did go to the wind a little more than the bobcats do. Typically when I'm calling bobcats, they don't even, they don't care where the wind's blowing. They're, they're just going to use cover the most cover and, and try to sneak into the call as close as they can. Now, if there's a little high point where they can get elevation and get visibility of the situation, a lot of times they'll climb up on it. But uh, the lions that I've called up, did tend to go a little more to the downwind, which makes me think he's, he may be a little sharper. Mm
2: -hmm. Have you had any close calls with, with any any, being aggressive toward you or one you wounded and thought it was dead and went up on it and put it, you know, kind of cornered it a little bit. I I always, you know, watching those TV shows with the dogs and the mountain lions. Of course, they always jump out and go by the, what that sucker (laughs) decided to come toward them. Does that, (laughs) does that ever happen?
0: well i've had you know with bobcats i've had my dogs trim and uh i shot one out i just had a 22 pistol and i guess i didn't hit him very well and the cat hit the ground right by me and of course the dogs went to jump on him and he actually backed up against my legs so that the dogs couldn't get behind i guess he thought it was a tree so he's backed up against my legs while the dogs are fighting him and that was that was a little different. Uh, but he did not. The dogs kept him occupied. So he was not able to turn around and try to climb me. <laughs> uh, I have had him. Uh, and I have had him when I was in South Texas as a boy We treat a bobcat one night and a big mesquite. And uh, of course, mesquite typically aren't very big. But we had some really big mesquite in our country. And so uh, I climbed up there with Mr. Yarborough, who was, I was about probably 15 or 16. And of course he was up close to 70. Like I say, I like to hunt with old guys. And he said, well, see if you just jump him out. So we had some young dogs, and we were gonna you know, let them run him and tree him again. Well, I climbed up about 15, 20 feet in this big mesquite, pushed that cat out. And of course he bailed, he went, Japelle passed where the dogs were. They were up against the tree, tree, and, and we probably had 10 dogs on the ground. Well, he makes a big loop, and but I'm I'm starting to climb down from the tree. I heard Mr. Yarber holler, here he comes again, and <laughs> looked, and the dogs made a big loop, and here comes the cat up. Now the cat's trying to butt, jump me out of the tree. <laughs> I, I let him get close enough. I hit him with a flashlight and knocked him back <laughs> off and uh, that was into that. But, you yeah, know, I've had bobcats get really close to me. I had a coyote one time in South Texas in the daylight. Uh, he came running right up to me and kind of huffing and within arm's reach. And I went like fist. I didn't have a gun. I had two guys from California, one on this side, and one on this side. And I was going to spook him back out in the field. Cause he came across the field and no one shot, so I thought, well, I'll just run him back out there. And when I threw my hand at him, I he he bit at my hand and I, but he didn't make contact. I think if he'd really wanted to, he'd had me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then he, but he didn't, he didn't shy back out into the field. He just gra- humped up real big and growled at me and walked into the brush beside me. Mm. And I, that was the boldest guy I'd ever called up, I guess. Then I called up Bobcat in broad daylight uh, one evening right before dark, and Big Tom, and called him up close enough where I could reach out and and touch him. And he he let me extend my hand to him, and he he came up and sniffed my hand, and I let him walk off (laughs) after he did that. You know, if you spend as many hours in the field as I have, you're going to see some weird stuff.
2: (laughs) How many days a year are you out there?
0: Oh, between my dogs and uh, and calling, you know, I I used to spend 200 days out there, and maybe a little more. And uh, right now, it uh, seems like I've got so much stuff going on, I'm not able to do it that much, you know, probably down to 100 to 150 days. But, it, you know, when I was really going, we might be out there 250 days a year. You know, we were doing out, you know, we were outfitting and, taught, you know, we were outfitting for elk, mule deer, whitetails, turkeys, predators. You know, when you do that, that's pretty much year round. Yeah. And then, of course, you were usually working young dogs and trying to train those. So that kept you out in the field, you know, most every day.
2: Now, do you still get after the elk, deer, and turkey quite a bit?
0: I don't. I don't. I uh, I still hunt turkeys when, when my bride wants to go. Our good friend will go hunt them. Uh, elk, I don't anymore. Uh, we're, we don't outfit anymore, uh, although the best elk herd in the country is right out here in West Texas. Steve, my youngest one, he, he just returned from hunting out there and and they're killing some huge bulls out there on, you know, where 30 years ago, there weren't any elk. And, uh, you know, a hundred years ago, there were a lot of elk there. And then of course they, we killed them out. And now they're, you know, they're, they're in that country and uh, they're killing some elk that over 400 inch elk in that country Is now.
2: Is that right? Goodness mm-hmm. sakes.
0: Uh, so they were bow hunting uh here last week and I don't know. I think they got a three hundred and fifty to three hundred and sixty, something like that, archery bulls, and really cool video.
2: She may be showing up, and making a trip to West Texas.
0: Yeah, <laughs> in a while. So, <laughs> well, it's it's uh, it's it's just some old, you know, some of those most of those ranches out there are big, and they're very private. So those elk are very, you know, they're protected pretty much, mm-hmm. uh, and and there's no season, no bag limit on them. So, you know, just getting permission to hunt him is just a tough thing. Yeah,
2: Shed, you got any follow-up questions? Anything you want to ask Gear or reminisce about?
1: No, oh, I mean he's uh, he, he's he's a legend. So, and you can we could sit here and talk to him for hours, and he could just oh. keep going on and on for sure. I mean, it just. So he's a, he's a wealth of knowledge. I just put it
2: that no, way, I've for learned, sure. I've learned a ton from listening to you. I, I really have, like I said, I haven't had any really practical experience of going out and, and, and predator hunting myself. Although a couple of leases I'm on, we've got a lot of coyotes. And obviously I know that in order for coyotes to live, they're killing stuff, which is fawns, polts, and whatever they can get a hold of. And you know, my son, Got some ground over in Kentucky, and uh, he was talking to a game warden over there. And I don't know the time period, but it was last spring, around turkey season, I believe. So that end of February, March, April, May, summer, two or three month period, game warden put a trail camera on a on a den, and he had 30 fawns that he got pictures of coyotes bringing to that den, and that which sounds alarming to me, but but that's what they're out there doing every day. So, but I think most most ordinary folks like myself probably doesn't realize the damage you know, we enjoy going our deer hunting, but you don't realize the damage that those coyotes sure. are doing. Does that sound reasonable to you? Like, you know, them 30 yes. fawns, is that things you've seen?
0: Well, y- you're you're right. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize coyotes, it, it the male and the female raise those pups. So you've got two adults out there hunting. And, you know, when they're little, of course, the male's doing all the hunting and he brings food back to her. She's just nursing the pups, but once they those pups get uh, up a little bigger, it, it takes both of them to raise that litter. And a lot of a lot of people, you know, hunt coyotes the coyote year round. But I I tend not to hunt the coyote when they're denning, when they've got those little ones, because in this country, if we if I kill say I kill the male, and he by the way is easier to kill than that female. I, I hate to say it's the <laughs> female sharper than the male. If I want my wife to know that, I'll tell her. But I put a hardship on that female, and, and it might cause her from just killing you know, wildlife to killing sheep and goats, which are in this country, because I can tell you it's a lot easier to catch a baby lamb or goat than it is to catch a deer or a jackrabbit.
2: Yeah.
0: And so that's why I kind of lay off of them when they're denning and it you know and it's just a little respect for them but yeah that they've done some studies down in south texas you know years and still do and they they coyotes kill 70 80 percent of the fawn crop if, if there's no control on the coyote so that's why most of these places that are really attempting to raise you know these big antler deer they, they all have programs, predator control programs, and it's primarily for coyote. And whether, you know, most of them are snaring their fence lines, they're calling, and, you know, and then, of course, just incidental shootings, like when you're finding or see them when you're in your deer blind. Yeah. But all of those ranches are doing something to control the predators.
2: And, you know, you, you can thin them a little bit. I don't even know how much you thin them. You would know that. But you you're never gonna completely exterminate the coyote, are you? They'll be here long after when, when nothing can grow in the ground or lives on the earth, there'll probably be a coyote somewhere. You know,
0: somewhere, uh, mm-hmm. and you know, everybody says, a lot of people have said that, you know, the last thing on this earth will be a coyote or a cockroach and a cockroach. <laughs> yeah. Well, it'll be the coyote because if there's nothing left but the, coy- the cockroaches to eat, that's what he's gonna do. He's that's gonna right. survive. He's gonna eat all the cockroaches. So um,
2: yeah, they'll, they'll yeah, adapt, won't they will adapt will
0: Easier to stay, and of course, when the populations are lower, that's when they have those big litters. If you get into you know an area where you've got a lot of coyotes, you'll see them raising less pups, and it's right? you know because the food source is not there. Mm-hmm. It's Mother Nature takes care of it. That's you know coyotes are like wild hogs. Shed's up, he's the master catching these wild okay. hogs. But they tell me in this country, if we don't kill seventy-five percent of the hog population every year, we're losing ground. Because they're so prolific.
2: Yeah. Shed she to get after those hogs. He's not interested in long-range shooting either. He likes that up close and personal with a, with his with his with his case pocket knife. He doesn't
0: need any bullets. He probably no. need, he probably need a knife. <laughs> there you go.
2: He throws well, the knife down and just goes at him. It, those
0: those boys are going to be tough enough. He won't. They won't need a knife. That's right. No. And now go with. me. Yeah, that's the main thing. Is that they go with you? They go with me
2: every chance they can. Well, Gary, I appreciate you taking some time to to spend with us today. Like I say, my impression I told you the first, I still still have it. Very nice gentleman. We need more folks like you. And again, thanks for the information today and for spending a little time with with and I. I greatly appreciate it.
0: All right, thanks so much for having me.
2: Yes, sir. Take care and Thank good, you. good luck finning the, the coyotes and the bobcats and everything you're going after this fall all right thank you guys yes sir take care thank you for spending time today with shed nine and and our guest mr gary Robertson of burnham brothers game calls and carnivore tv gary is recognized and highly respected as one of the best predator hunters of our time his show carnivore tv has been the most popular predator hunting show in outdoor programming in addition his ultrasonic game call which will be available soon is already highly sought after and reaches the exact frequencies needed to fool wary predators it's also able to produce those sounds that are inaudible to the human ear. If you would, please assist Shed and I by liking and rating today's episode and by subscribing to the Foshi Creek Podcast. We are not a sponsored podcast, so the only way we can reach a broader audience is by word of mouth and the number of subscriptions, likes, and positive ratings that we receive. Please share our content on your social media platforms and with all your hunting and outdoor friends. Thank you again for listening, and as always, we learned everything we knew down on Foshi Creek.